Well, you can open in your Bibles there to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. Even if you are like me and have read very little Shakespeare, you'll likely recognize the phrase et tu brute. Those are the dying words of Julius Caesar and Shakespeare's, Shakespeare's play. The words, of course, are Latin for and you, Brutus, as Caesar's being stabbed to death by a group of Roman senators who have conspired together to, to kill Julius Caesar, and amongst the senators was his good friend, Brutus. You know, that phrase has so influenced our culture that they're sometimes even thrown around as a joke. If you want to make a joke about your friend betraying you in some way, some minor infraction, and you say, et tu, Brute. Well, jokingly or not, we know what those words mean. It means something more than betrayal, but it's a treacherous act committed by one of the last people on earth that you would expect to commit that act. And so this morning, we've made it to the point in the Gospel of Luke where we meet an even more notorious traitor than Brutus. Even amongst non-Christians, the name Judas Iscariot is associated with treasonous behavior and betrayal and wickedness. You don't meet very many parents naming their kids Judas. What is, what is often not discussed as we think about betrayal, treason, wickedness, is that Judas does not act alone in our text. There are multiple actors in this passage. So the question we're asking this morning is, who wants Jesus dead? Who wants Jesus dead? So again, we've been walking, you know, passage by passage through the Gospel of Luke. We've made it to chapter 22. And in just big overview, chapter 22 and 23 are focused on the cross. They're about Jesus' uh, work and going to that cross and dying there as a, as a substitute for our sins. Then chapter 24, resurrection, commissioning of the disciples, end of the Gospel of Luke, into the, the book of Acts, which Luke wrote, which is like the continuation of the Gospel of Luke. So John read the, this larger section. We're really going to focus on verses 1 through 6. This morning, we're going to pick up in 22 and 23, a little bit towards the end. Next week, we'll actually focus more on the Passover meal, the Last Supper, and what that means for us. So we're going to take this larger chunk in two separate weeks here. Today, I want to think about the plot to betray Jesus, and then next week, we'll zoom in on this Last Supper meal. All right, so we're asking, who wants Jesus dead? And we might ask, why do they want Jesus dead? And our text starts with a group that, again, if you've been here and you've, you've maybe read the Gospels before even on your own, it's not a surprising group, right? It's the religious leaders. The religious leaders want Jesus dead. Look there in verses 1 and 2. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. So as Luke often does, he sort of sets the scene for us by letting us know that, that the Passover is drawing near and this feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That would be a week-long celebration that would follow the Passover. Now again, that has a lot to do with this Last Supper meal that we're going to be looking at next week, so I'm not going to dwell here for long. But notice this. 
that these, these celebrations, they were commanded by God in the Old Testament. They were technically two different celebrations, but they were so closely connected both in time frame and in meaning that they're oftentimes treated as one. You, you, you may have picked up on that when John read the text there in verse 7. It says, well, the Passover meal is taken at the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So even the gospel writers are sort of treating these two separate celebrations as one. And they're treated that way because they were both meant to commemorate the exodus when God freed his people by his sovereign hand from the most powerful empire in the world at the time. He frees Israel and leads them out towards the promised land. And so, again, we'll look at that more fully next week. But I say that because I want you to notice this, that as these two things are drawing near, you might say on the eve of these celebrations that are meant to look back and remember God's redeeming work for Israel. They were meant to reflect the deliverance that God allowed for his people as a time of offering thanks and a time of sacrifice and recognition of what God did. On the eve of this, the religious leaders completely miss that God is at work in their midst through the person of Jesus Christ. And I think that's why Luke starts there the way he does, to, to sort of intensify for us this irony that, that as they're meant to remember the delivering work of God, and here comes the Son of God to bring about the ultimate deliverance, and yet they're opposing him. In fact, they're seeking to kill him. We've seen in the Gospel of Luke over and over and over again about how this, is, how this animosity towards Jesus has, has been growing, it's been building, right? And it's particularly strong amongst the leadership. There are crowds and people that have been wanting to hear Jesus, but the leadership is particularly opposed to Christ. They tried to simply discredit him, right, by asking him really tricky questions about theology, and really tricky questions about politics that might get them wrapped up into trouble with the Roman government. They tried that, but they failed, and they failed quite miserably. See, Jesus could answer their questions, but when he turned around and asked them questions, they were left silent. They could not answer without betraying their own hypocrisy. And so he could answer their questions. They could not answer his. And so the only path forward that they see now, it's not going to work to discredit Jesus. It's not going to work to try to get him wrapped up with Rome. Now he must be put to death. And that's what the text says there in verse 2, that they were seeking to put him to death. Right? The idea is that this is sort of, it's, it's con continually on their radar. Right? It's sort of a diligent search and effort to figure out how and when can we put Jesus to death, constantly looking for opportunity. Now it's interesting, the text tells us why, why they would want to put Jesus to death. It says there at the end of verse 2, for, you might say because, they feared the people. Now this is, this is, this is interesting how this is sort of developed in the gospel of 
Luke, we saw back in chapter 20, verse 19, that the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on Jesus in that very hour. That's when Jesus is kind of confronting them, embarrassing them. They sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against him, but they feared the people. So, so back in chapter 20, they feared the people, and, and so that fear actually restrained them from going out and laying hands on Jesus and trying to have him arrested or even killed. Right? They were unwilling to act because they were afraid that the people would be upset with them. Now, in chapter 22, it says that they're seeking an opportunity to kill him because they fear the people. So it's, it's shifted just a little bit. It's... It's no longer like, well, we don't want to lay hands on him because he's pretty popular. It's we have to kill him because his popularity is growing and we cannot have the popularity of Jesus growing. So in chapter 20, fear kept them from trying to harm Jesus. Now in chapter 22, that that fear of the people, the fear of them accepting Christ and following Christ and them being undermined in their authority and their ability to lead and their prestigious state there in Israel, now they say, we've got to kill Jesus. So they fear that the people will turn on them. And we've seen that Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem is, is, you know, humanly speaking, like the, the peak of his popularity in his earthly ministry. Right? Many are coming to hear him to uh, uh, teach. Many believe in the crowd that are coming to hear Jesus. They believe that John the Baptist was truly a prophet. And John the Baptist looked at Jesus and said, this is the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the world. So if John the Baptist was pointing to Jesus, the crowd, by and large, at least right now, they are interested in Jesus. And also keep in mind that, you know, during the time of the Passover, the population of Jerusalem would have, would have swelled far beyond what the normal population would be. And perhaps many of these uh, Israelites who were coming to uh, observe the Passover, observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, many of them likely from Galilee, where Jesus spent a large portion of his ministry teaching and healing. And so they've heard of Jesus, and perhaps they're coming to the temple to hear Jesus teach. And so Jesus' popularity is growing and it's become a threat. It's become a threat to these religious leaders. We're told here specifically it's the chief priests and it's the scribes, right? We've talked about the scribes as, as lawyers, but not like we would think of a lawyer because, you know, we have separation of church and state, you sort of have the law and then you've got the church, well, in Israel, the civil life and religious life were so joined together that a lawyer was actually an expert in the Old Testament because that's where their law was given. And so these chief priests and these, these scribes and these lawyers, they were religious leaders, yes, and they were also civil leaders in Israel. And many of them had been appointed by the, the Roman government who had, had oversight over them. And so they had gained their place by playing nice to their Roman occupiers. And Jesus is a threat to this nice little agreement that they have going for them. And so again, their anger is directed at Jesus. So who wants Jesus dead? Well, ironically in 22, chapter 22, it's the people who, who should have been trained to most clearly see the Messiah when he came. 
right? To most clearly recognize Christ when he showed up, but they're blinded by their zeal to maintain their position. They're blinded by their zeal to maintain their status and their influence, to maintain their status as respected scholars and zealous keepers of the law, and to keep this privileged position of service in the temple, whom Jesus had just said it's going to get torn down. Many times, as you read the Old Testament, right? many times in, in the history of Israel, they had turned away from Yahweh, and they had pursued other gods. And in our text, they're not bowing down to physical idols here. They'll surely go through the motions of Passover in the coming days. They'll observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But the thing that is driving them is not love for God and worship of God. The thing that is driving them is love for self and a love for self advancement and they're so blinded by that that they're driven and willing to murder to keep their lives the way they want them so the chief priests and the scribes what are they doing they're diligently seeking their chance to take out Jesus or if it works out have him killed by someone else there's one thing they lack though they lack opportunity Okay, they, they lack opportunity where there's not the crowd around because the crowd, again, at this point, still likes Jesus. What they need is, is a chance to get to Jesus when he's away from the crowd. What they need is an insider to sell out Jesus and let them know where they can find him when the crowd isn't there. What they need is Judas. Right? And we see in this text that Judas wants Jesus dead. That's point number two this morning. Verse 3, then Satan entered Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. It's interesting, I think in Luke, as you think about, okay, so the first time Judas is mentioned, it's, it's when Jesus is kind of gathering his disciples, and it says Judas, Iscariot, the betrayer. And then here, right before he's going to betray Jesus, he's Judas Iscariot, who is one of the twelve. Right, and so he's, I think what Luke is doing, again, is he's helping us to see that, man, this is, this is a betrayal of the, up, of the highest order. Right? And just a, just a side note, all right, uh, just a side note here. Some, some claim, you know, that the Gospels are not reliable. The Gospels are sort of the inventions of the disciples kind of after the death of Jesus. They, they, they all got together. And of course, Luke was a close associate, associate with many of the disciples. And, you know, they kind of got together and they, they created this legend, this legend of Jesus. Maybe they were embarrassed that the one they followed for years died. And so now they've got to create this, this story about how it all went down and kind of vindicate themselves. You know, maybe Jesus was a real person, but we can't trust the, the, the records of the gospel. They made him out to be greater than he actually was. Well, there's lots of good answers to that. The, the, the one that I, I think our text kind of helps us think through, again, just, just briefly is this, that there are lots of details in the Gospels that you would not expect to find if someone were coming together and trying to make up a story to vindicate themselves. And one of those details is the fact that if, if you're trying to make Jesus out to be something after his death and, and vindicate yourself, 
you, you probably wouldn't include the detail that it was one of his very own disciples that was a conspirator in his death. Now again, there are lots of good reasons to believe in the reliability of the Gospels as Christians. Primarily, we you know we don't need all the all the evidence. We believe the Holy Spirit of God has inspired the text of Scripture, and it's reliable because God is reliable. But I do think it's helpful every once in a while when the when the passage makes sense to to consider these these ways in which. Uh, reliability is demonstrated and it's seen and it's made clear. And so Judas, one of the 12, says, goes away in verse four and conspires with the chief priests and the officers. All right, so these, these officers would probably be like temple guards who at that point in their plan, they may be the ones to go arrest Jesus. Who, who knows? He's, so he's conspiring again with the religious leaders. So they had this problem, right? They, they want to kill Jesus, but the crowds are around and Judas actually solves their problem for them. They needed to find a time when it would work for them and Judas can deliver that. He can give that to them. They knew sort of the, the general what of the plan, kill Jesus. They didn't know the how. And so Judas comes with, with the how. I'll, I'll show you how. You actually see it in verse six, right? So he consented, that's Judas, and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. All right, so that's why I keep saying that. The crowd can't be there because that's what verse six tells us. What's interesting when, and sad, not, not just interesting, but when Judas comes and they sort of hatch this plan and they have their, their mole on the inside, verse five is staggering. It says, and they were glad. And they were glad. The chief priests rejoiced that they had found a way to fulfill their desire to be rid of Jesus once for all. And how, how dark and twisted is the human heart. That this is, this is the thing that is giving them joy. You know, so even as we just think about the way the, gospels, the gospel of Luke developed as Luke began with this mind-boggling reality of the incarnation and the virgin birth and the eternal Son of God coming into His creation in the most humble fashion, on a, coming on a mission to save sinners and to restore people uh, to God, right? And with perfect humility, serving and loving others, offering himself as a sacrifice for sin uh, after living a perfect, guilt-free, sin-free life. Healing, teaching, restoring, loving, protecting, giving. This is the Christ. And they're glad when they have their chance to kill him. And that's the state of the human heart. That's the state of the human heart, apart from the work of Christ. You see, sin is not simply making bad decisions. It's not messing up or, you know what, I, I wasn't really thinking when I did that. Sin causes spiritual blindness, as one metaphor, spiritual death is another. Our minds are darkened apart from Christ. It is this this wickedness within. It is a hatred for God. And that's why Jesus has come. That's why Jesus has come. 
Because we too, we, we too once walked in this darkness. If you are in Christ this morning, you too once walked in this darkness. You had blinders on, rejecting God and insisting on living life your way, on your terms. We weren't there conspiring against Christ, but it was our sin that necessitated his death. And God is so kind to save. God is so kind to send Jesus into this world where he knew that he would come into his own and his own would receive him not. And that the very ones that should have recognized him are glad when they have their chance to put him to death. And as I think about the kindness and the goodness of God, I wonder if, if some of these very men who are conspiring with Judas became the beneficiaries of his death and resurrection. And I say that not because I like to speculate about the Bible. I had a professor called, he would call it sanctified speculation. I'm just guessing, but who knows? No, no, I'm not, I'm not doing that. Acts 6 says this, And the word of God continued to increase, and the numbers of the disciples multiplied greatly, where in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And how good is God to save sinners who are darkened in their understanding, spiritually dead, separated from God, haters of God, yet Christ came to suffer in their place and to raise, uh, be raised again from the dead. So the religious leaders, they were afraid of what it would mean for them if Jesus' popularity continued to grow. We saw that. But what about Judas? What seems to be driving Judas? Why was he willing to do what he did? Well, in the tax, what did he get in return? Money. He got money in return. The other Gospels tell us that he received 30 pieces of silver for betraying Jesus. Judas wants Jesus dead because of, a, because of greed. Because of greed. Judas loved money. The Gospel of John tells us that, you know, John would pretend to care about the poor, but in reality, he's kind of sort of dipping out of the offering plate himself, stealing from uh, the ministry. He pretended to care, but was himself a thief. He had heard Jesus teach that you cannot love God and money, right? Because you will despise one and hate the other. And now he's become the supreme example of what it is to love money and so demonstrate that you hate God. This is why God warns us to keep our lives free from the love of money and to be content with what we have. We're told, you know, in the, in the bulletin, I put a different verse about money, you know, every week. I kind of rotate through several, but one of my favorites, 1 Timothy 6, be rich in good works. We're called to be rich in good works. Paul warns us about the dangers of money, and, and, and it's, it's not something inherent in money. It's our hearts that are, that are oftentimes drawn towards that. Paul tells Timothy, take hold of that which is truly life. And it's not money. It's not money. You know, I'm thankful for the example of many in our church who demonstrate through their own generosity, their willingness to give. And I, I don't have particular individuals in mind. I'm just talking about our church. Just generosity, 
willing to use money to serve God instead of using God to try to get more money. Now, we may, may we examine ourselves, examine our hearts. Are we, are we tempted to overvalue money? Judas had been walking with Jesus for years at this point. He'd heard Jesus teach. He'd seen him heal the sick. He had seen Jesus raise people from the dead. He'd even been given power earlier in the Gospels to go out and, and exercise the power of God in casting out these demons, right? So John had even been involved in the ministry at that level. And now for 30 pieces of silver, he will lead these bloodthirsty leaders to his Lord and his master. No evil is it's so senseless. Sin is so deceitful. The reality is if we don't actively seek to put sin to death, it will cause us to do the dumbest things. Right? My friend Tyler, it's a little crass, but he says sin makes you stupid. And I think that's true. It causes people to commit the most senseless acts and to bring about destruction that you never thought you'd be capable of. So for Judas... Nearness to Jesus did not equal spiritual life. Ministry for Jesus did not equal spiritual life. His heart remained hardened. He remained blinded by his lust and his greed. But there's another that you probably saw in the text. There's another that's kind of conspiring in the shadows. Verse 3 began, Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot. At the opportune moment, Satan acts. Right? He enters into Judas. The name Satan is, it's a Greek word that comes from a Hebrew word that meant adversary. Right? And so it just became a title for him. And it's a good title and it's a fitting title because he is the enemy of God and he is the enemy of God's people. Satan, just speaking, thinking broadly here, he is a created angel who rebelled against God's purpose that he had given for his angels to serve God. And not only does he rebel against God, but he acts out against those who are created in God's image, tempting Adam and Eve, and that when they sin, plunging the whole world into sin. Some of the, the things in Scripture that are attributed to Satan and his little minions, his demons, they include indwelling People and even animals when Jesus like cast them into the pigs. Right? But we've seen Jesus cast demons out of people in the Gospel of Luke, physically afflicting people, initiating false worship, promoting false teaching. And again, I'm just pulling from broadly from Scripture, performing false signs and wonders, deceiving prophets, encouraging idolatry and engineering death. These are sort of the things as you read broadly in Scripture. These are the things that Satan is described as doing. He's called a murderer from the beginning. He is a destroyer. So as you think about Satan, he's not a force, right? He's not a metaphor for when people do bad things. He is a created angel who's rebelled against God. He's powerfully working in this world, and he powerfully works in Judas. 
The prince of darkness finds a home in the heart of Judas. John, John's gospel tells us that Judas or Satan put it into the heart of Judas to betray Christ. Now, one commentator said it this way, because, you know, we, we have questions, right? What does it mean? Is Judas now in control? Well, we'll answer that more, more fully in a moment. But I like this. I think this is helpful. There is no hint that Judas is now like a demoniac, like the demoniac that was just crazy out of his mind, right? Unable to control his own actions. Judas opened the door to Satan. He did not resist him, and Satan did not flee from him. He did not resist him, and Satan did not flee from him. So we would say that Judas, by not turning from sin, by not truly heeding the word of Christ, by entertaining sin and persisting in his greed, by worshiping money, he's left the door open for Satan's power and influence. We see that in Scripture, Satan is extremely savvy and powerful. Right, we're often, and rightfully so, right? We're often so eager to make the point he's inferior to God, right? Because so, some people get so confused, they think it's good versus evil. It's God versus Satan. It's two equal forces kind of bashing heads. And so we're right to respond and say, gosh, he is so far below God. It's not even funny with, with the word Jesus cast out demons. I mean, he doesn't even compare but I think we maybe forget then that he is a powerful foe that is working in this world, right? We forget that he's a powerful enemy to us and that we can't, we can't just rely on our own strength and wisdom. It's only through the power of Christ, the indwelling spirit, and the power of the word of God that we might do what James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So what, what, what do we want to do? You know, we don't want to become obsessed, right, with, with demons and things and attribute everything to demonic activity. Satan made me do it. We're not, we're not going there. We're not going to play, play that game. But we also don't want to, want to deny their activity in this world and deny that Satan roams around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour and that he's called the God, little G God of this world. That Satan has blinded the eyes of the unbeliever from seeing the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. Right? So we don't want to we don't want to say, well, Hollywood's done this, so we're going to do this. Right? We want, we teach the we want to teach the Bible. We want to stay with what the Bible says. All right. So Satan. Enters Judas. We're not given a ton of detail about what that looks like. We would say this. He exercises powerful influence over Judas. And Judas willingly follows Satan's bidding and goes to betray his Lord. And the irony here is, again, thick. Think about when Jesus was casting out demons. What was the accusation? You cast out demons by the power of Beelzebul, another Another name for Satan. You cast out demons by the power of Satan. They accused Jesus of engaging in satanic work. And now, what are they doing? They're conspiring with Judas, who's being led by Satan to put Jesus to death. 
they probably thought this was God smiling on them. God has blessed me today because he has finally given this man into our hands. They rejoiced and viewed it a good thing, but in reality, they're conspiring with not just Judas, but with Satan. We said they want, the religious leaders want Jesus dead because of their status. Judas wants Jesus dead because of money. Satan wants Jesus dead because he hates God. He hates God and he hates God's people. But Satan doesn't realize he's laying his own traps. Right? When we were in Proverbs, we spent the summer kind of walking through Proverbs, trying to do a chapter at a time. I didn't do that perfectly, but you know, we learned pretty early on in Proverbs that it's the fool that is quick to run to do, do violence. And Solomon gave that warning to his son. The fool runs to violence because he doesn't realize when you live a life of violence and when you run to violence, Solomon said you actually set your own trap and you kind of walk into your own trap. And, and that's, just, that's just the way life works. When you're quick to run to do violence, violence is likely to return on you. And so it, in this uh, gospel narrative, Satan becomes the ultimate fool. Thinking he's going to cause violence to Jesus, he just sets his own trap. After the fall, back in Genesis chapter 3, Satan is judged. He's warned that one day he would strike the heel of, of one of the descendants of the woman. He would strike the heel, but his head would be crushed. And he's sort of coiling back, ready to strike, not knowing that the time of the head-crushing work of the Son of God has come. His head is about to be crushed. And that really brings us to our last point this morning. Religious leaders want him dead. Judas wants him dead. Satan wants him dead. But behind all this, right, behind all this, God is orchestrating his sovereign will in and through the actions of evil men and evil angels. That's point number four. God is orchestrating it all. Now, Jeff looked at the notes this morning and said, why didn't you just make these all line up? God wants Jesus dead, obviously. I'm like, I don't want to say that. <laughs> right? So we came up with the answer. God wants Jesus dead and then undead. Right? He wants him resurrected. But God is orchestrating it all. We see God's sovereign orchestration in many ways in the text. One of them is the timing. Right? Luke starts with the day of the Passovers uh, drawing near. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is drawing near. I think the timing points to the fact that God has perfectly orchestrated these events to bring them about exactly the way he intended them to be. The timing is no accidental comment. It's not that it just so happened this way. This is the time, right? In the it, Leading up to this, Jesus has sort of slipped away from angry, angry crowds. You're not going to kill me today. It's not my day. He's, he's told people that he's healed. Hey, just keep it quiet for now. Why? Well, God uses means to accomplish his will. And by telling somebody to be quiet, they're not going to go tell everybody and stir up the religious leaders before it's time for them to be stirred up. He's mainly been sort of ministering outside of Jerusalem, pouring into his disciples. Now he's marched into Jerusalem or, or rode into Jerusalem with, with shouts claiming that he is the son of David, refusing to quiet the crowd, confronting the religious leaders, absolutely embarrassing them. 
And now he permits Satan to do his bidding in entering Judas and going and betraying him to the chief priests and the religious leaders. He no longer, we might say it this way, he no longer restrains the evil in Judas's heart and he's no longer holding back Satan from doing what he desires to do. Judas has given full vent to his sinful desires so that at the right time, at this predetermined time, by God, Jesus could die as our Passover lamb, as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So we see God's sovereign orchestration in the timing of these events. We see it even in the evil actions of evil men. All right, look down at verse 22. This is at the Last Supper, right? We'll deal with that next week. Jesus has just announced that it is actually one of the 12 who will betray him. And I'm sure, you know, the, the question that comes to mind, why? Right? Why is one of the 12 going to betray Jesus? Are things out of control? Has Jesus lost control of of his group and now things are just spiraling out of control. He's not got his hand on the moment. Why is one of the 12 going to betray Jesus? Verse 22 tells us why for the son of man goes as it has been determined, as it has been determined. God's purposes are being fulfilled even in the traitor himself, (coughs) even in the work of Judas Iscariot. And even in these religious leaders who had thoroughly and utterly rejected God. These events, these last uh, few hours of Jesus' life, they are no accident. God is bringing about his will in and through the evil actions of evil men. In Acts, you know, Luke, Luke affirms this again in the book of Acts. You have the apostles preaching about these events. And in Acts 2.23, Peter says, this Jesus delivered up, not just according to some out-of-control plan, not, not delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Why was he de- delivered up? Well, because the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. And Peter points to them, and, well, maybe he points, that's my, that's my mind. You crucified and killed. So the one who was predetermined to be killed, you killed him, he says. A group of believers is, is gathered together again in Acts chapter 4, and they're praying, and they pray this way, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate. So you've got uh, Peter talking to the, the Jewish crowd and saying, you killed him. Here you've got the, the Roman rulers mentioned, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Why are these people together? Why why is Pilate there and and the people of Israel, verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place? To do whatever was predestined to take place. So God is working through the evil actions of evil men. Interestingly, and we sort of teased it a little bit with Peter's words, God is orchestrating History, Satan has entered the heart of Judas, but in in, in this text, Judas is still held 
responsible for his actions. We read the beginning of verse 22. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. That's why we said earlier that Judas willingly goes along. He follows the evil intentions and desires of his heart. And he's responsible for those actions and for those desires. There's no indication in the text that Judas gets to say, that wasn't me. It was predetermined. Or that wasn't me. Satan entered into me and was controlling me. He is responsible for his behavior. This woe is pronounced on him, which is a a warning of judgment that's going to fall. The betrayer will stand before the judge and give an account and have to take responsibility for his betrayal. So we we might say it this way. God, without, without putting evil in people's hearts, right, without putting evil in people's hearts and without being responsible for sinful choices perfectly brings about his desired ends through his sovereign control over all things. God is not and cannot be the author of evil, but even these evil actions fit perfectly within the sovereign will of God. He's working through evil men, and we also see that he's working through the actions of Satan. He's working through the actions of Satan. We might, we might think about it this way. All, all God has to do, he doesn't have to put evil in someone's heart. Right? All God has to do is sort of pull back a little bit from, from, from constraining the, the wickedness of a person's heart. Right? Jonathan Edwards would say, like, the, the sun going behind the mountains is not responsible for the cold. Right? It's just that now it's cold because the sun has sort of disappeared behind the mountains. And that's what we're saying. If God, if God intends evil, he doesn't put it in someone's heart. He cannot and will not do that. It's, but if he pulls back his restraining grace at any level, then sin is rampant. So we might just say all God had to do was take the restraints off and the wicked desires of Judas and Satan and the religious leaders took care of the rest. Took care of the rest. One pastor says it this way, whatever may have motivated Satan, he acted as he did because he could not do anything other than what his wicked, what his wickedness longed for. And at the same time, God willed. God willed it. Satan desired it. He willingly took the role in the death of Jesus that God had determined for him. Now think about this. We're almost done here. The worst thing that's ever happened the worst betrayal, the worst evil, the greatest evil ever committed, the most treacherous day in history, they, they fall under the purview of God's sovereignty. And through it all, God brings about the greatest good. Through the betrayal and the death of his son, he brings about the greatest good imaginable. So as we just think about the sovereignty of God, and what is that? how does that help me? How does that encourage me? If you're wondering this morning, how can this bad thing, how can this evil, how can this suffering, how can this trial, how can this thing fit into God's good, sovereign will and he maintain his goodness? This thing hurts, it's wicked. 
Well, I think our text encourages us this morning that if he is orchestrating the betrayal and the death of Christ, and he's bringing about the greatest good, then he is working sovereignly in your life and can use those wicked, evil things, those times of suffering in your life for good. Whether it's chronic pain, an ending illness, marriage difficulty, maybe you've been betrayed by a close friend or family member. I wonder if you're willing to admit this morning that God's ways are so far beyond our ways. And like the disciples who could have no idea what God was up to and how he's going to turn this for good, he's going to glorify himself and he's going to accomplish the salvation of sinners. I wonder if you and I are willing to admit this morning, God's ways are beyond our ways. And we may never actually see, we, we will likely never actually see what all that God is up to. All that God is up to. But I wonder if you'll trust him. I wonder if you'll be able to look at the way he orchestrates life here. I wonder if you'll trust him, knowing that he can use it for good. I think what I'm saying is you can believe Romans 8.28, that God works all things together for good, for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. No matter what's happening or has happened or will happen, God is bringing about the good in your life of conforming you to Christ. Yes, in this life, but more fully when we see him. We will be like him because we will see him as he is. We can have confidence in that. And I think, I think Paul even makes that connection in Romans 8. He says, he says uh, you know, if he didn't withhold his own son, then why, why would you assume he's withholding a good thing from you? He's given you his son. You can trust that all these things are being used for good. So we're talking about God's sovereign orchestration of these events. And I, I, we'll just end with this. I think this truth is just so beautifully illustrated for us in John chapter 11. Many people... You know, John chapter 11, obviously, the, the raising of Lazarus. Many people saw that miracle and they believed and they were following Jesus because of it. But this, again, this creates concerns for the, for the Pharisees and the priests. They're concerned, again, like they were in our text, of Jesus' growing popularity. So they get this council together and they, they express the, the sort of very fears that have been expressed in our text. And they say, what are we to do? What are we going to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. What are they worried about? Jesus' popularity will grow. We'll lose our place. Rome will crack down. We won't have Israel like we have Israel now. And then Caiaphas speaks. And he says, you don't know anything. He says, and one, one thing you don't know, Caiaphas says, it is better that one man should die for the people. It is better that one man should die for the people than the whole nation perish. And then the text says this. He did not say this of his own accord. He didn't realize how true his words were. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. He's trying to be practical. 
and saying, you know, it's better for one man to die for the people. And he's speaking truth unbeknownst to himself that one man would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day, they made plans to put him to death. This was the plan from the beginning, that one would die for many, not just for many in Israel, but for all those from every tribe, tongue, and nation that God would call to himself and save through the finished work of Jesus Christ. What a good and a kind God and a sovereign God we serve. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you. We just stand in awe as we think about how you can be sovereign over these events, yet unstained by sin, yet bring about unspeakable good and glory to yourself. Lord, we cannot even fathom in our finiteness how that can even be. Lord, give us eyes to see it, hearts that trust it. Lord, may we be changed as a result of what we've heard this morning from your word. In Jesus' name, amen.